We are starting a brand new series, and I'm so glad that you're here to kick it off with us. It's called Eyewitness, the testimony of someone who is there. And over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to travel with John, the apostle, as he traveled with Jesus. And this series is going to lead us right up to Easter. So I want you to start thinking as we track through this, who is it that you want to invite to come to Easter with you? It's several weeks off, but I want you to be thinking about and praying for them and asking God to give you an opportunity to open that door with them. Somebody who is far from God today, or maybe somebody who just has a lot of questions. I want you to be thinking about and praying about it. Now, before we jump into this series, before we start from our text, which is John, the second chapter, if you want to turn and hold that in readiness, we have to address a tension that the Apostle Paul deals with throughout this gospel. Often, two of the most misunderstood words in Christianity, or two of the most popular words, faith and believe. If you think about it, those words mean something in the world that we live in on a regular basis. I have faith in that, that that's going to happen, or I can trust that. I have faith. I believe that. But for some reason, those words get hijacked when they're used in the theological context. In everyday life, we believe based on evidence, but that's not always the case in the church. In real life, we believe based on our experience, what we see and learn and read. And we also believe based on the confidence that we have in the person who's telling it to us. Are they trustworthy? Are they somebody who we can, we can trust? Think about it. When you were in elementary school, your third grade teacher, you know, first grade teacher, I don't know who it was, said 10 times 10 is 100. And most of us didn't run home and line up 10 lines of 10 things and then count them to find out whether there was actually 100 there. And why did we not do that? because we trusted her or him, right? They were trustworthy, and we trusted them. From time to time, we have a discussion about something, and there's evidence on this side, and there's also evidence on this side, and it's a little confusing. And during times like that, we're not sure what to believe. Let me give you an example. Over the years, there has been a lot of conflicting information with regard to bacon. Growing up, I was told you should not eat a lot of bacon because there's a lot of fat in it, and that's not healthy. And then all of a sudden, a couple decades ago, along comes this Dr. Atkins, and he has this diet, and he said, you should eat as much protein as you can, which meant unlimited bacon. And it was like I was let out of prison again, right? And then what happens? Somebody comes along with a study on cholesterol, and they said, eating lots of bacon is not good for you. And I thought, those people are not speaking Christian language. And, and then I just read this week, just recently, this new diet called the keto diet. I read this this week on the Internet, so I know it's true. <laughs> they said I could, and I quote, you could eat all the bacon you want, exclamation point, unquote. So there you have it, right? And all God's people said amen, right? Or those of us with really bad cholesterol said amen, right? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. When you get opposing pieces of information, sometimes you're not sure which side is right. And then there's this tendency that we have, especially in my life when it comes to bacon, that I have this what's called a confirmation bias. Are you familiar with this? 
This is when you tend to want to believe the stuff, the research, or the testimonies that are on your side of the continuum, the eat all the bacon you want side. And you seem to take offense to this research over here, though there's no logical reason. You with me? And we all have confirmation biases about different things. In fact, some of us have them about Christianity. And not necessarily in a good way. We believe because we want to believe. And that can be dangerous. I'll explain it here in a minute. We know what it means to believe something. We all know what it means to have faith in something. And this is really important for us to understand. I want you to listen. Faith and belief do not take on special meaning when they are used in the context of Christianity. But religious faith and belief are often divorced from reason and confused with hope. And for some reason, when it comes to Christianity or religion in general, faith and belief take on a different meaning, having little or nothing to do with reason. And I don't think that's a good thing, because I think there is a lot of evidence to validate why we would put, a person would put their faith and trust in Jesus. Instead of it being actual faith or belief, it tends to look more like hope. And there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. I hope he'll show up this time. Did he come last time? No. Did he come the time before that? No. I, I hope he comes, though, this time. It's good to have hope. But there's a huge difference because hope keeps us positive, right? We're still hoping. We're still pulling for it to happen. But hope is not belief. It's not faith. Hope is different than that. And unfortunately, for some of us, we grew up in a setting where I think it was intentionally good, the heart or the desire was good, but you were told things like, you just gotta believe, man. You just gotta believe. You gotta have some faith, sweetheart. If you don't have faith, you're lost. And that's true, but it's more than just having it. What's it based on? Do I just have faith in faith? Do I just go, okay, I choose to believe? It's kind of silly if you think about it because it's, you either believe something or you don't. And what do you base it on? Evidence. I think if you ask the Apostle John or you ask Peter, what do you think about this? Just, oh, you just gotta believe. They would push back hard on that. If you look at the teaching of Jesus, you're not gonna find that in any of his teaching. As we look at John's testimony, an eyewitness of Jesus, he was there, we find a completely different paradigm. Frank Turek is a scholar, Christian scholar. He lectures all over on college campuses in America. In fact, he's also one of the guys that debates on college campuses, and oftentimes he's representing Christianity against a, you know, the new atheists or the leading atheists in our culture. And he writes this, the reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. Now, there's a wordplay going on here. You're not talked into it. But I think what he's saying is he's using this verbiage to say, hey, you were never convinced. Nobody ever rolled out the evidence for you. And he sees it, I'm sure, a lot on college campuses. Kids who said, hey, I'm a Christian, and they get to the college campus, and they go, yeah, not sure. Not sure. Kind of checking it out. Seeing what the other side's got to sell. Maybe you grew up like that where somebody said, you just gotta believe, man. You gotta have some faith, sweetheart. 
Perhaps that's what you were told when you were younger and you believed. You just believed. You just said, hey, everybody else does. I'm going to believe too. And you were young enough and that's what the Sunday school teacher said or that's what mom and dad said or that's what the minister said and they all meant well. They should have given you some evidence. And maybe they did, but if you grew up where somebody said, all you got to do is believe. And then somebody came along in the journey of your life and they pushed back on that. And they talked you out of it because nobody ever talked you into it. Maybe you read a book and the author talked you out of it. Or maybe you went to a lecture or a debate or you just had a conversation with another person and they talked you out of it. John would tell you, I did not follow Jesus because of faith alone. He would caution you from doing it as well. His faith was based on something significant so much so that the other 11 disciples were willing to end their lives. They were willing to die for the cause. Something significant had to be there for those guys to make that kind of shift, that kind of pivot. Here's the good news. There's more to it than you just got to believe, man. There's more to it. There are facts and evidence, and through this series, John's going to point it out for us. There's a lot of reason, there's a lot of facts that actually promote a place to build one's faith. The Apostle John left his father's fishing business. He's a blue-collar guy. Pretty good business, it seems. But he left it because of what he saw, not just because of faith. Oh, his faith came as a result of what he saw. But he didn't just leave because of faith, like, hey, I'm I'm gonna gamble my entire future on this rabbi, there was something that he saw, and you're gonna see it through this series. Somewhere along the line, somebody said to John, you need to document this. I mean, you've had some amazing uh, experience with Jesus, and you've been teaching people about it. You should, you should write this down. Or maybe, maybe John on his own said, you know, I need to write this stuff down. And he did. And we have it today. It's known as the Gospel of John. Some people call it the good news. The cool thing is this. John was not, he was not content to just tell us what happened. He wanted to tell us why it happened. At the end of his gospel, John gives us the thesis for writing this gospel. You remember a thesis when you were in high school or college? Some of you take a moment, think back to that, uh, that long past era. You remember that? You remember when you would write a paper and they'd ask you to put a thesis in the paper and the thesis was kind of the big point that kind of explained why you were writing this paper. And we always put it at the the front of the paper, right? The top, first couple paragraphs. But John doesn't do that. John puts the big idea at the end of his gospel. It's in John, the 20th chapter, verses 30 and 31. And you should highlight these verses. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So what John is saying is this. There was a lot of stuff that we saw probably even worthy of being written down, but it's not in this book. But there's a whole lot more. And then John tells us why he chose these. Verse 31, but these are written that you may believe. The purpose of John recording these things wasn't so that we might know what happened, purely informational. He didn't write these things down just so we'd have a record of all the cool stuff Jesus did. John wrote these things so that you and I may believe. He wanted you and I to believe. But it isn't him saying, 
You got to believe, man. Just believe. Or you got to have faith. No, John wants you to know about his experience with Jesus. His hope is in that you'll experience Jesus through his testimony in such a way that you will be convinced Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's not simply telling us what to believe. John's going to actually build a case for why we should believe it. And that's worthy of our faith. Just take a look at the evidence over the course of this series, Eyewitness, and you can decide for yourself. Well, what did he want people to believe? Well, he tells that in verse 31. He said, but these are, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's it. That was his, his thesis. But it goes just a step beyond that. It's even better than that because it's not, it's not just the result of placing your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Look what he says. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, the sequence that brought John to belief, to put his faith in Jesus Christ as who Jesus said he was and claimed to be, John believed that. It's the same sequence that he's gonna give us in his gospel. It's like, this worked for me. And I saw it, and I'm gonna give you the best, the best I can as I write out this sequence for you. And the sequence is pretty simple. It starts with events. There's some significant events that we find in Scripture. These are not random happenings. And then there are signs. The events actually are signs. You'll find that John refers to them as signs. And they tell us that not only are these signs, but they give us evidence the signs are actual evidence that Jesus was who he said he was and it's such, in such convincing fashion that you're going to find John saying, I believed him. And as a result, I put my faith in him. I put my trust in him. Why is this important? Well, John doesn't start by saying, I place my trust in Jesus and I hope that it all works out. I'm just going to put faith out there, just you know, kind of roll the dice. What you see throughout all four of the Gospels is, is a human struggle. They believed, and then they didn't believe. And then they believed again, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah. And then they, then they were wondering, well, I don't know. And that goes on, back and forth, back and forth, numerous times, not just in John's Gospel. They were trying to sort things out, but in the end, it wasn't faith that convinced them. It was what they saw. It was the evidence. And John's logic was, if this sequence convinced me, I hope and pray it convinces you. John didn't just write randomly. John actually organizes this gospel around seven chronological events that he called signs. These supernatural acts of Jesus weren't random acts of kindness, and they weren't Jesus just showing off, but John realized that these were signs that pointed to something, something really significant. Now, for us, it's easy to get enamored with a sign or a, a miraculous event, especially when you need a miracle. It's easy to get caught up in that. But it seems that John realized that just becoming enamored with God's mighty power on display was a mistake because we were missing something. These miracles had a specific purpose. Don't miss the purpose. The purpose was to point people to the true identity of who Jesus was. So he does his best, John does, in this gospel to not be enamored by the miraculous, but to be enamored by the person that the miraculous pointed to. So sign number one. We're gonna look at sign number one this morning. 
It's an interesting thing about this sign is that it's so well known that when John tells the story in the gospel, he doesn't even tell us that the miracle that happens, he doesn't tell us when it happens. He just assumes that everybody reading the gospel already knows about it because this, this miracle happened at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? And now John is really, really old. And this, this, this miracle, right out of the gate, people were talking about it. It's probably one of the most talked about outside of the resurrection because it was first and more people heard about it. A lot of people heard about it. To the point that John doesn't think he has to give you the punchline. It's kind of funny because you're reading, if you don't know this, there's a point in the story where you're going, uh-oh, somebody's going to be in trouble. You'll see when we get there. But this time, Christians were like, they knew this story. They, the, somebody would go, you remember when Jesus was at that wedding? Oh yeah, everybody knows that. Because that's the time when the water turned to wine. That's sign number one. Water turned to wine. Verse 1, John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cain of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Now, this wedding, this is a big deal in the first century. There's a wedding, and it takes place in Cana, Galilee. That's way north of where Jerusalem is, if you're wondering where the geography is on this. And we know, John tells us, that Jesus' mother is there. This is an important point. Okay? Now, keep in mind, John gives us a lot of details because he's telling us a story about something that actually happened. This is not a fairy tale where somebody's vivid imagination is just ginning this up. This is actually something that happened. And what we find out later in the account is that Jesus' mother, Mary, has something to do with the food or hosting this party. She may have been part of the catering crew. We don't know. But she has something to do with the party. And we're not exactly, but later on, we're going to see that it comes out. She's got some responsibility here. Verse 2, it says this. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So what we know is John is one of the disciples. He's actually there which means this is an eyewitness account. He actually saw this. This is not secondhand knowledge. Now, when you, you may have heard that weddings at that time were kind of a big deal. They went on for days and days and days. They, not you know, three hours or four hours on a Saturday afternoon. They went on and on, and they were very expensive, which means that what is about to happen was a catastrophe. This is an absolute disaster at this wedding. Verse, four, verse 3 says, when the, when the wine was gone, uh-oh, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So they run out of wine, which in our, in our day would be like running out of cake or punch or bacon at a wedding, you know? If you run out of bacon, I mean, why stay, right? My cholesterol needs a little more bacon, this would have been very, very tragic. And if you're the host or you're in charge of the catering or perhaps you're the mother or father of the bride or the mother or father of the groom, this is a disaster. This is an embarrassing moment for you. But this also comes to a part in this narrative where I think there's a question that I know we don't have the answer for, not this side of heaven. But Mary turns to her son as if this is a natural response. We have run out of wine, and she tells her son this. Now, why does she do that? Was it possible that growing up, having Jesus in the home, 
Do you think Mary ever said, hey, son, um, if you could just do that thing you do, I'll turn my back, and then if you just get us some groceries, that would be great, okay? Do you think that happened? You say, I I probably didn't. But something, somewhere along the way, maybe it was before he was born, when the angels told Mary that this kid would not be like every other kid, but somehow she knew that when there was a crisis, you could go to Jesus. And that is still true today. You can always turn to Jesus in a crisis. And you know, some of you, this is the one thing you need to hear this morning. Don't sleep on that. Jesus responds to us. Jesus responds. And to us, his response might sound a little bit harsh or a little offensive. Look what he says to his mom. Woman. Now, I would strongly recommend that none of you do this at home, okay? You may say, it's in the Bible, and I'm quoting Jesus, but I can promise you, your wife is not going to care about that. It's going to end poorly for you. That is, a, that is an actual translation. He says to his mom, woman, but it's not in the context that you and I are thinking, you know, where we're like cavalier, about ready to run away after we say it, you know? But he's saying something, it's a little more formal. It's more like, Milady. Now, I know we don't say that in our context very often, but it, it's, a formal, it's a formal thing. This is what he says. Woman, why do you involve me? Milady, why do you involve me? He wants to say, Mom, Mom, why now, right? Why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Mom, I've come to save the world, not weddings. Okay. This is, not, this is not the way that we should roll out this. This isn't how I plan to go public. This is a terrible messianic rollout, mother. But you know and I know that it's his mom who's asking. And let's be honest, that changes the equation, doesn't it? And we don't know, did mom just say it out loud or did she come over and pull his sleeve and say, sweetheart, they're out of wine. Do your thing. You know, we don't know how it went down, but John gives us this insight and it does matter. It matters who's making the ask, doesn't it? Sometimes it does. I remember a number of years ago, Wayne Smith called me. He was my first boss, 1982. He was my mentor in ministry I miss him dearly. But he called me this night. I wasn't all that excited to get the call. He said, could you go to this church? It's about an hour away, way out in the middle of nowhere. And this is before GPS, which was kind of scary. You remember? And uh, it was dark. He said, this church is looking for someone to do their Thanksgiving service. And it was late on Wednesday evening. And it wasn't It wasn't convenient for me. I was looking forward to having some time with my family, just downshift a little bit. And I wasn't wasn't looking forward to it. But when Wayne called, I called him back and I said, I'd be happy to do it, sir. Because it was him. If it had been some of you, I probably would have said, I'm sorry if I learned that. You know? I don't know. I wasn't as Christian 25 years ago as I am today. Okay? I've grown in my faith. Let's hope. 
It does matter who asks. So Mary probably just smiles, and then verse 5 says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then I've got this sense that she looks at her son, smiles a little bit, maybe he looks at the other disciples and smiles at them, and then she walks off. You know, problem solved. The Son of God is on the, the problem now. There's a question that jumps into my head. Why does John start with this event? If you think about all the things that John saw, what did John see in this? It's kind of a random miracle if you think about it. He turned the water into wine. It's not like anybody got healed. It's not like anything significantly bailed anyone out. I mean, they did bail out the people who were responsible for this wedding, but most of the people there didn't know. I mean, a handful of servants and the bridegroom, but Jesus and his disciples, but everybody else, they didn't even know. What do you think John saw? Why did John start here? And what is so significant about this miracle that he calls it a sign? And it, was re it, it resonated with John. We don't know. We don't know when it dawned on John what was so important here. Maybe Jesus explained it to him and laid it out to him, or maybe somewhere along the way John did the math, and, you know, two and two, and he came up with the answer. Or maybe when he was an old man, the Holy Spirit whispered into his heart, and he said, you may not have known this, but this is why this was so important. This was the perfect way for Jesus to roll out his role as Messiah and Savior. This was the perfect introduction. Even though the wedding guests never knew what had happened, because they had no clue that a miracle had just been done right there in their midst. But John seemed to know that for those of us future readers, this was the perfect introduction to the message and ministry of Jesus. So the story goes on, verse six, it says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So this was a family that was somewhat wealthy because they're hosting this event and you had to have some some resourcing to do that. But they're also really good Jews because they've got these stone, uh, these stone jars that were used for ceremonial washing. You see, the Jewish law in the first century application of the law required that the Jews did certain washings before they did certain ceremonies in order to stay ceremonially clean. They had to wash their hands sometimes all the way up to their elbows, like a surgeon. There were all kinds of traditions that told people how to wash. But here's why I think this is significant. The stone jars are icons of the Old Testament covenant and the traditions. They represent the past that Jesus had come to replace. He says, see those things? You're not going to need those anymore. That's what, he didn't say that, but that's what's happening. Something is going to change. This is brilliant if you think about it. Jesus goes public by using something that would be replaced. Ceremonial washing would be done away with. And Jesus is pointing to what would replace it. Himself. He's the new covenant. The old covenant that God made with Israel was established by Moses at Mount Sinai. And it was coming to an end. And these jars represented that Old Testament sacrificial system. 
Jesus decides to use this moment to illustrate something that nobody would understand in that moment. It was under the radar. It was so significant, though. Something new was coming because Jesus was starting. The door is beginning to open. Story continues, verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. F.F. Bruce, a British theologian, in his commentary on the book of John, said, the water provided for purification as laid down by Jewish law and custom, stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony, which Jesus was to replace with something better. This is the perfect introduction to his ministry. He tells the the servants, fill those up with water, like you've done in the past. It's going to be for something different. Fill them up, just like usual. And then they'll do something that those jars have never done before. They've been used for ceremonial washing. That's not what they're going to be used for today. The old is passing away. Behold, someone new is coming. Verse 8 says, Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet would be the head waiter. He's the guy that decided what you were going to eat and what it was going to be served and when it would be served. And then it says, They did so in verse 9, And the master of the banquet tasted the water. And if you're reading this for the first time, you have no knowledge of what's taken place. You're thinking, uh-oh, somebody's going to be in trouble because the head dude thinks he's tasting wine, but he's actually tasting water. But again, John never tells us about when the miracle happened. But by now it's happened. It's happened. Because he assumes that everybody has heard it before. So he's not telling us. He's not filling it in. Everybody knows how this ends. He says, they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And of course, everybody already knew that. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, when the head waiter tasted this, it caught him off guard. He's like, this is really, really good. In fact, this is way better than what we started with. He'd never seen this done before. It says in verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after, after the guests have had too much to drink. Everybody starts with the good stuff to impress everybody. But after all the guests have had a few adult beverages, they stop caring about what things taste like. And then that's when you bring the cheap stuff out. But listen, he said in verse 10, but you saved the best for last. You flipped the script on this. This is crazy. And you know what? It's kind of foreshadowing for what God did. God started with the Old Testament law, but he saved the best for this moment right then. He's starting to open the door to the ministry of Jesus. The sacrificial system set the stage for the new that was coming. Just as the original wine set the table for the better wine that was to come later, in the, in the same way, God in the nation of Israel established a covenant that would set an expectation of one, of one to come who would fulfill that covenant. So when John the Baptist is standing on the shore of the Jordan River and he said, look, 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Jews who were there knew what he was talking about. It had a context. Because lambs were used for sacrifice. And when he pointed to Jesus and called him the Lamb of God, they knew. He's talking about the sacrifice. So Jesus uses a metaphor here to create an illustration right there at this wedding feast in Cana to say to the world, though the world at this time had no clue, he was saying something new has come, something better is coming. There was nothing wrong with what had come before. In fact, it was way better than anything else on the planet. There was nothing wrong with it because what came before was there to establish what was happening now. In other words, the water to wine was more than a miracle. It was actually a sign that points to somebody. But nobody would fully understand it until later. Verse 11 says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, circle that word, the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And get this, and his disciples believed in him. They believed. Why? Because they saw something that looked like something that a Messiah just might be able to do. Now, they're going to they're gonna waffle from that later, but they, they believe now. They're looking at Jesus differently because the water turned to wine. His disciples placed their trust in him. They placed their faith in him. The question is, why, why did they believe in him? Because he set them down and he said, listen, you just got to believe. You got to have a little bit of faith, sweetheart. No, he didn't say that. If they ask a question, he would have just said, wine. Any explanation needed? It was water. They knew it. The servants knew it. But now it's wine. In fact, it's the best wine that they served all night. And people are going, this is weird. Why is the good stuff out now? The reason they believed was because they saw evidence. They saw evidence. So from the outset, John and his gospel establishes this paradigm that we're going to find all through this gospel. Because never once was anyone asked to believe without there being evidence. Or confidence, at least, in the person who was delivering the information. Verse 12 says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. They didn't even stay and go, hey, guess what? I'm the guy that turned the water into wine. You guys sign up over at the table over here, become a disciple of mine, creating a movement. (laughs) No, he gets out of Dodge right away. And so it begins this This thing, unlike John, our faith in Jesus doesn't come by seeing. Most of us, most people anyway, they don't choose to follow Jesus because they saw something like John saw. Most of us aren't that favored or privileged. We come to faith by hearing. We're not asked asked to just believe. We're invited to believe based on what happened based on the testimony of the people who actually were there and saw it. People like John, who saw it firsthand and then wrote about it. In fact, John came away from this experience with Jesus and looking back, even though there was a lot of bloodshed between that that event and John writing this gospel, Peter is dead. 
Paul is gone. All the rest of the 12, dead. The city of Jerusalem most likely had been leveled at this point while John is writing this gospel. And John probably, he's the last guy of all the apostles alive on the earth at this point. And in spite of all of that tragedy and horror, what he saw, he wouldn't forget. And it caused him to believe in such a way that he knew Jesus was the Son of God. And based on that, based on what he saw and what he heard, not just because he had faith, not just because he believed, but in addition to that, he arrives at this conclusion, maybe the most famous verse of all, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John believed it with all his heart. Before this series is over, we're gonna look at all seven of these signs that John documented in his gospel. And my hope, my prayer, is that if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, before this series is over, you will believe that he is the Son of God. Come to wash away the sins of the world. For all eternity, he'll change your life. That's my prayer. And not because you blindly believed what somebody said that you had to believe in, but because you heard the eyewitness testimony of John, the eyewitness testimony that came from somebody who was there and saw it and did us a huge favor to write it down. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful for your word. I'm so thankful, God, for the way that you have brought the past alive. Most of us are here today because, in part because of this word. We're, we want to draw closer to you, Lord. Some of us are desiring that through investigating you, maybe for the first time. And I pray, God, that, that those who are checking you out get answers today. Some of us are, are here because we want to grow deeper. We want to build clo- in, in our relationship with you to go closer to you. Both of us, God, need evidence that proves that Jesus was who he said he was. And I thank you for this first sign that John gives us. Most of the people who were there when it happened didn't see it. And many of them may not have even known it for years, maybe never. But it stands out as a milepost on the journey of John's life that Jesus was who he said he was. Somebody who could take plain water and turn it into wine and open the door to the beginning of a new covenant. I pray, God, that you will give us evidence to know Jesus personally. God, I pray that so that no one will ever talk us out of what we put our faith in because we build it on fact. It's not just faith, though faith is part of it. We have to trust. We do trust you. But it's not just faith in faith. It's faith based upon the facts that You were truly, truly were the Son of God. Thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.